Before we start the show, we want to suggest to anyone listening that they consider supporting groups that are working to help fight the bigotry and violence facing our friends in AAPI communities. Groups like Stop AAPI Hate, which we'll link to on our show page, or you can visit at stopaapihate.org. Also, for those who want to learn how they can assist people facing hatred and violence in person, we suggest looking into bystander intervention training with groups like Hollaback. For more information, visit ihollaback.org. Welcome to the Stereoactive Movie Club. My name is Jeremiah, and I am here with Alicia, Laura, Mia, and Stephen. And we're going to be talking about the 1941 film Citizen Kane, directed by Orson Welles. But first, let's introduce ourselves. Stephen, other than Citizen Kane, have you watched any movies since we last recorded? I got around to watching two other movies. Um, The first one was Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the 1971 version uh, with Gene Wilder. Um, I had watched part of uh, the other one that came out, I think the Johnny Depp one. So I I wanted to go back and revisit that one. And it was kind of interesting because I wondered if it was considered a kid's movie back then, because it was kind of scary as an adult to watch that. So I don't necessarily know like what the common wisdom is today of watching that, but it it was still really good. Um, And I found out the kid who played Charlie never really acted after that. He was a really good actor. So I, I always look up people like after I've watched a movie just to see if they ended up doing something, especially if they're kid actors. So I looked them up if I thought they were cute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I did like it. And then the second movie I watched was uh, Mank, which was, oh, um, it was on perfect Netflix. Perfect timing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was directed by David Fincher, who is one of my favorite directors. And I wanted to kind of get another perspective of, of uh, the movie. Um, Gary Oldman was also, he's, he's the one who played Mank, which he was amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's always good in everything. So those are the two movies I saw. Yes. Yeah. I, I thought it was his best in a while. I know Laura did not seem to think that you brought, she amazing. brought that movie just, up pre- in a previous episode. Yeah. He's mm-hmm. a little old for the part, if I, you don't mind me saying. No, he definitely is. But have you seen 15. pictures of Herman Mankiewicz? That dude was living beyond his years because he was like in his <laughs> 40s, but he looked like he was 60. Because he well, was, was like drinking hard and just living hard. Right. Yeah. I remember I said something like a sprightly 43-year-old. And I was like, nope. At that age and that time, nobody was sprightly. Yeah. They really weren't. Yeah. yeah. They really weren't. Amanda Seyfried looked a little young for it, maybe just because everybody looks so old. I'm sure she was at the right age. Mm-hmm. But it just she just looked so fresh. In that Wasn't movie. she great? I really liked her yeah. a lot. Even Lily Collins, I thought. These are just probably some of the best performances we're going to see yeah. of them. They were I great. I really liked it. Yeah, I liked it. I liked it a lot. It was different than some of the other Venture movies I'd seen, but I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I was reading about it, and Gary Oldman, um, I don't have the quote, but he said something like about watching it in the theater versus streaming it and how much more, you know, impactful it would have been in the theater. And I thought that actually is true. I, if I had seen that film in the theater with the surround sound, I think it would have been incredibly intense experience. But well, one of the things I liked about watching the movie, even at home though, was that it gave me the sense of being in a movie theater for the first time in a long time, because the way they, mm-hmm. they did the sound, 
It has this mm-hmm. echoiness that that they actually mm-hmm. got from re-recording the sound in some sort of a, an auditorium. I, I was listening to a, an interview with David Fincher where he explained it, and he's just like a a technician. I mean, he's an artist, but he's also a technician. He knows right. all the back end stuff of how to do all these things in a way that is just kind of, you know, insane. But uh, it it really sounds like you are in a movie theater. If you have it on the right, like our TV just was able to handle it. Yeah, it, it was nice. Like I was watching the movie and was like, oh, yeah, this is kind of what it's like to be in a movie theater. It, and it was weird and nice. Uh, Alicia, how about you? Uh, well, I also watched Mank this week and um, I really, really liked it, too. And it's just so it was so there were so many layers that I wasn't expecting in it. And I didn't realize that it was focusing on his time writing Citizen Kane, I thought it was more just about going to be about his life in general. Um, so yeah, it enhanced like obviously my viewing of Citizen Kane and just gave me a lot more to think about. I really, really, really liked it. Um, I also watched. Um, I watched a lot of movies this week. I was back home in New York, and I promised <laughs> you guys movies. So um, I watched this movie called The Kid Detective, starring Adam Brody. But um, anyway, it's about a guy that was a detective in the sort of encyclopedia brown mold when he was a kid. And then as an adult, he's still trying to be a detective, but he's not, it's not going well. <laughs> um, and it, it was good. It was dark, but it was funny too. And then I also watched um, Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar, which is Ooh, you watched so funny. What do you think? I loved it. Oh my God. I loved it. It was so funny. It was so, so, so funny. There's a dance remix of Celine Dion's My Heart Will Go On <laughs> in it. It's just the most crazy. It's really funny. And um, um, and then I also watched this movie. Um, it's a Mike Nichols film that I guess it didn't do well at the time that it came out called Heartburn with Meryl Streep and Jack Nicholson. And it was a, a Nora Ephron uh, wrote a book about the breakdown of her marriage to, I think, Carl Bernstein. And this was the they filmed uh, the story and yeah, I liked it. It's, it's a pretty realistic um, take on the breakdown of a relationship and someone who's being unfaithful and what people go through in that situation. I thought it should have a little more acclaim than it has. And Laura. I watched Nomadland, uh, which was as good as the hype surrounding it. Um, in the shades of blue and just the beautiful it, it was one of those films that and I don't it shouldn't be a spoiler alert but it has the same tone throughout there's no like horrible thing that happens in the end of the second act that you have to just kind of get over and you know up the ante it, it, it wasn't like a three-act structure it was beautifully made and I have this inexplicable thing where I feel related to certain actors. Um, one of them is B. Arthur, who I feel like <laughs> is my godmother on some level. And another is Abe Vigoda, who I feel like is my uncle. And Frances McDormand is also one of them who I, she reminds me so much of my Aunt Madeline who passed 20 mm. years ago. And I think that this film is exactly what my aunt Madeline didn't have the freedom, the ability to, to take life 
even during all of the limitations of it or living out of a, a van, it's, mm -hmm. there's still such an element of freedom that's throughout the film that was really beautiful to watch. Mia? Um, I think I only watched one movie this week besides Citizen Kane and then like half of another one. But um, we watched Rushmore, which I'd seen mm. before, but it had been a really long time. Um, it was fine. It's not my favorite, um, but it was, you know, an enjoyable rewatch. And uh, yeah, I'm reading a really good book. So I honestly spent more time doing that than nice. watching movies this week. What's that like? I know. <laughs> I know. Um, what is this book? It's about <laughs> Genghis Khan. Um, <laughs> um, but one thing that I did want to say just real quick is that I was like complaining about last night. So I was reading a recent issue of The New Yorker and they had a talk of the town with Chloe Zhao's boyfriend, who I guess is was the DP on the film and like you know sounds like very much like a co-creator you know they were like traveling all around and you know doing um looking for places to shoot and stuff like that um but it just really pissed me off that I'm like you have this like female Asian director who's the one who actually made the film like why are let's you... feature the white boyfriend yeah exactly like <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying he didn't contribute to the film but I was like when's the last time like some white male or any man like director's partner even if they did work on the film with them is the one who is getting the talk of the town instead of the actual director and better chloe Zhao she did win best director at the golden globe and nomadland won best uh drama um so yeah we rewatched rushmore um i hadn't seen it in a long time and really enjoyed rewatching it in addition to that i watched star trek 2 the wrath of khan Nice. This is when I was like, I'm going to go read. Yeah, I'm yeah, good. Yeah. <laughs> and then I randomly, well, I guess not so randomly, I, I rewatched Michael Clayton. Brilliant. Yeah, it is. I saw it's it once just... before and I did not like it when I saw it then. There have been so many people I've heard talk about it in such glowing ways uh, more recently that I thought like, eh, sometime I'll rewatch that and see what I missed about it. So for those who may not have heard our first few episodes, this is a podcast where the five of us are discussing movies that have appeared on Sight and Sound Magazine's poll of the greatest movies ever made that comes out every 10 years. And we're basically using it as a prompt to watch some classic movies ahead of the next poll, which will be out in 2022. We invite listeners to take part in the discussions by watching along and sharing their opinions in our Facebook group, by emailing, or by leaving a voice message on our anchor.fm show page. And again, this time we're talking about Citizen Kane. But before we get into the history and background of the movie, what did each of us know about the movie going into this viewing? Who's seen it before? Or what were you expecting, if anything? And Laura, since you picked this one, why don't you start us off and also tell us why you picked it? I picked it because because it's the cane. You know, it's Book of Genesis. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's the OG kind of idea behind a film. And I've also been fascinated by Orson Welles for a long time, even though last week I might have seemed opposed to him. <laughs> As a filmmaker, um, I also watched it in high school for a class, and it was—it's amazing when I rewatched it recently how much I didn't remember or get, or I must have been a fog, been in a fog of depression and self-pity in in my teens because 
none of it, none of it got through. So that's what I knew. And Alicia, how about you? Uh, I think this is my third time watching it. Um, the first time I saw it, I was like around 20 years old. And um, yeah, I mean, obviously I know it's at the top of critics list constantly as like the best film of all time. And um, yeah, I, I knew a little bit of that it was based upon William Randolph Hearst um, and I guess a few other newspaper magnets as well. Um, yeah, so that's kind of where I was going into it. Okay, and Mia? Yeah, I think I had a similar knowledge that sounds like Alicia did, like best movie ever, you know, based on William Randolph Hearst. Um, I had, we had watched it together earlier in the pandemic and I fell asleep halfway through. Did that get repeated again this time? Stay tuned. Um, and but yeah, so I've never actually seen the whole movie until recently. And Stephen, um, yeah, like Alicia, I think this is the third time I've seen it. Um, the first time I saw it, I was in college. I took a film class my senior year, um, so I really paid attention to the story much more than the the actual like filmmaking because this is like a film criticism class. So it really struck me. It's like one of the like it's been one of the best films I've ever seen. And I saw it again a few years ago. Um, yeah, and I think that, yeah, still one of the best films I've ever seen. I don't think that that's changed. Yeah, and I've seen it several times. I think at least three or four, but probably more than that, and especially if you add up all the different clips of the movie I've seen in various forums. And <laughs> like, I don't know how many times I've seen the movie then. Um, but I even saw it on a big screen once right after the movie theater off of Union Square, which was United Artists when it opened, uh, when that did first open. I think basically they were new, so they didn't have all their screens booked out yet. Um, so they were playing old movies just to fill those spaces. And they had Citizen Kane on a screen. I was like, fuck yeah, I'm a freshman at film school. I'm going to Citizen Kane. <laughs> um, so that was my experience with it. And uh, yeah, so about the film. Um, so even more so than other movies we have or we have watched or will watch as part of the series, Citizen Kane has had so much written and said about it that I thought it might make sense to just read a couple of those things. So first, this is from a book called The Ultimate Encyclopedia of the Movies. It's one of the first film books I ever got that I just completely dug into when I was first seriously getting interested in movies and filmmaking, and it became sort of my guidebook for learning about classic movies to try and watch. So here is their entry on Citizen Kane. The revered motion picture landmark from Orson Welles, Citizen Kane, conjures up an exhilarating fable on the corrupting nature of power. Boy Wonder Welles, just 26, rocked the RKO studios with the costly, unexpected failure of his Baroque-filmed, poison-penned portrait of a William Randolph Hearst-style newspaper tycoon who suffers a doomed marriage with a pretty nobody. Welles gives a towering performance as the thrusting media baron, eaten away by the emptiness of his success, while Joseph Cotton is equally impressive as his reporter friend who tells the tale in a series of flashbacks, which I, I find it weird that they only mention him yeah. giving flashbacks. Joseph in this. Cotton, yeah. 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 The whole um, film flashback. Yeah, and other people's flashbacks. Oh, other people. Yeah, um, unreliable. Made with an obvious joy in exploring the possibilities of cinema and a cast of fresh, bright names from Wells's Mercury Theater, 
It is one of those few films where every viewing yields further pleasures and nuances. Kane is a milestone technically as well as artistically, since it is renowned for its pioneering use of low-angle shots, expressionist images, deep-focused photography, and the use of looming ceilings. Probably the greatest movie in the world, certainly the most famous, usually the one voted by critics as best ever, and almost incredibly for revered artwork, it's darned entertaining too. The Oscar-winning script is credited to Herman J. Mankiewicz and Wells, though Cotton and John Houseman had a hand in it too, and who actually did what is the subject of an ongoing controversy greatly fueled in 1971 by Pauline Kael's pro-Mankiewicz viewpoint in her book, The Citizen Kane Book. The picture enraged Hearst, who campaigned to stop it by banning mentions or reviews of it in his newspaper, Empire, and this was a key factor in its box office failure and in sabotaging Wells' career. Also, I have the 70th anniversary box set of the film, which includes the movie, the 1996 documentary called The Battle Over Citizen Kane, and the 1999 HBO movie, also about the making of the movie, uh, called RKO 281, starring Leif Schreiber as Wells, John Malkovich as Herman J. Minkowitz, James Cromwell as William Randolph Hearst, and Melanie Griffith as Marion Davies. Also in the box set is a book with the basic story of Wells going to Hollywood and making the movie. And I just wanted to quickly read the short intro paragraph from that. Citizen Wells and the greatest movie of all time. 70 years after it was first released, Citizen Kane remains in a great many estimations, the greatest film ever made. No hyperbole, no stretch of the imagination required. The film that barely made a buck at the box office and was widely booed during the 14th Academy Awards. The miracle film that by all Hollywood standards couldn't have been made and that one singularly powerful and wealthy individual didn't want made somehow came to fruition and somehow ended up being the preeminent example of the power of movie making. So there you go. That kind of sets up what this movie is, I think, in history and culture for us um, as this movie that did a lot of things that were new and innovative and also has like our movie last week and very much connected to our movie last week mm-hmm. the magnificent ambersons I, I think it's kind of interesting that we're doing these out of order yeah well laura so what did you think of it this time around did it meet well, your expectations or live up to your memories of it, it i didn't have any memories of it right. and i watched it twice first for just the feeling because it had me from the minute it started rosebud um, but then there were things I noticed in that first take the, the snow globe shot or, you know, how people in the foreground and background were clear, you know, and then I, so I had to watch it again to really explore the technical aspects of it and just what I was watching. And I still don't know if I grasp all of it, but it was an incredible film and it, it's just such a, it's everything they say you shouldn't do when you're trying to learn screenwriting or which I am um, flash, telling a film in flashbacks or it's, it, it breaks every rule and it's just incredibly successful. Well done film. I loved it. Right. Well, I wonder how much of that has to do with this being his first movie and him very explicitly having said that, he wasn't not only did he not know how to make a movie as he started making this movie, he didn't even want to get into this. Like he's, he's described it. Orson Welles has described his path as like after the war of the worlds broadcast, 
mm-hmm. um, that that made him hugely famous for his day, even more so than he had been. Um, Hollywood came knocking, like all the studios were talking to him. Archeo was the one that for, for whatever reason he gravitated toward, but he, he has said that he did not actually want to go out there. So he asked for stuff that he thought they would never give him. And then <laughs> after a year, they agreed to his terms. He was like, okay, I guess I'll come then. <laughs> like, so, and that's how he ended up with the contract he had that got him into trouble sort of. But I wonder how much of his naivety around filmmaking and just his disinterest before starting the process of making this movie accounts for what you're talking about of him, like just being willing to break all those rules that you're talking about. Although he did have like the most experienced um, screenwriter working on this with him and perhaps writing the whole thing if some people are to be believed. You know, I mean, I've read different conflicting stories about that. Either way, the film, you know, when you make a film, it's a village. There's, you know, I don't remember the cinematographer's name. Greg Toland. Thank you. And Robert Wise was the editor, who was the editor on Amberson's. I mean, the films, in it, like you can see ceilings. It's one of the first earliest films you can see ceilings in it because they created all these different ways of hiding the lighting and the sound recording. And the one scene in the beginning of the film with the mom, um, Moorhead, who's, I think, someone, it's amazing how underrated she is when they take the little boy away. She walks straight into the camera, sits down at a table, signs a contract. There's no way you could feasibly do that. And what they did was they created a mechanical table that separated so that it could just flow. And this is all Wells and the team that created this. There was just so much technical, beautiful things that were done here that were never done before. Yeah, I mean, he was 24 when he made this, right? So I, I feel like when you're 24 years old, you're just willing to do that and you don't know what you don't know. So you're just like, why don't we create this and do this? And he worked with a bunch of people, I'm sure, that were more than happy to do something different. And he would probably collaborate with them. I don't know, I haven't watched a lot of documentaries about this movie, but just as a person who's like worked in TV, I know that when you walk in somewhere and you give people free reign to do different things, they'll come up with different things. Mm-hmm. So. I feel like that's part of why it was so successful and so innovative. Yeah, I was just going to say the same thing. And I, in fact, I was reading uh, Wikipedia, which might not be the most reliable source, but <laughs> I was reading that earlier today about the entry about Citizen Kane and the making of it. And I think that, I think that there was, it was the director of photography that just came, heard that they were going to do this and just came into Orson Welles' office and was just like, I want to film this, like, let me film this for you. Because he knew he would be able to try a bunch of stuff that he wasn't usually allowed to try in a, the making of a normal like factory studio picture at the time. Alicia, what you're describing is one of the very numerous uh, apocryphal stories about Citizen Kane. Um, that I think that one is probably true. Like, it, I think mm-hmm. Orson Welles has told the, a version of the story where he says, Greg Toland came in, slammed his Oscar down on my desk and said, I want to work with you because you don't know what you don't know or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Which, yeah, I I hope that's true because it's a great story. Mia, did you have anything? (laughs) I don't like this movie. (laughs) I think it's so... Okay, let me back up. I think 
I went into it very high expectations, as one should, for like the greatest movie ever created. <laughs> I already fair, knew from fair. when we tried yes. to watch it a few months ago that I was just like, I don't really get it. And I fell asleep. And I think technically it's like so good. I understand he like did all these things that had never that had never been done before. I think his performance is incredible. I think like the whole backstory is really interesting. But it just doesn't do anything for me. I just feel like there's no like real like emotion or heart in the story. And just for me personally, like those are the kind of movies that I like. And so I just found it like, okay, I can watch this and appreciate that it's like this, you know, was this revolutionary movie in all these ways and all of this kind of stuff. But like, it just doesn't do anything for me. Like, I just feel like even this morning when we were re-watching it, I was like, how much longer do we have? Like, oh, 35 minutes? Like, oh, my God. And it's not even that long of a movie. It's just like, yeah. So I hope you guys can change my mind somewhat because um, <laughs> I'm sure there's stuff that I'm missing. It's not like I don't want to like it. Um, but yeah. Well, I would just say that um, I, I, having seen it three times, I think each time its impact has diminished a little bit on me in, instead of grown. And I think that maybe it's because I think we're in such an age where like we can already, we can see how damaging the, the lifestyle of, I just need money and I just need power and I just need adulation. We we've all lived through the last four years of that. And it's an, at this point, it's an old story to us and it's a very like obvious story but I think at the time it was probably something that hadn't really been explored in such a deep way before. I agree but, uh, with you that it is a simplistic story. Yeah. It's a simple story. Level. Yeah. But, um, and, but yeah. And I also am kind of like not that interested in at this point in time and like what made this ritual white guy tick and why that's a big mystery that these newspaper men <laughs> wanted to solve. Yeah, and stuff. exactly. No, but, I felt kind of the same way. Sorry, not to cut you off. <laughs> Oh, no, it's okay. But I, that's pretty much all I was going to say. I still enjoyed the experience of watching it, though. Well, it seemed like he was such a bombastic character, especially at the beginning of it, that it was kind of nice to see it come down to earth, eventually, you know, as, mm -hmm. as the movie kept going. So that's what really drew me in at first, because you did see, like, wow, what a powerful character he really was, and everybody loved or hated him, but it wasn't really nuanced. So that's what I liked mm -hmm. about it. I, I kind of appreciated the more you filled in the puzzle pieces like that's a cliche I guess the opposite happened for me which each time I watched it because in my teens I didn't get it I watched it and then I watched it again and it was more impactful um as a film you know idealism being corrupted uh having something to prove the need for love and adulation but then there was these things like the reporter we never really see him and he is the man who tells the story. And it's just, to me, that's so, I don't think a film would have even ever before or ever since has had such the main character not really being seen, the, the, the tool for the story, the conduit. And I just, I don't know, it really impressed me. Well, that's what I liked about it too, because like Kane was, the story and this guy wasn't the story but he was telling the story so that's what i kind of liked about him he wasn't really supposed to be a character right he was yeah exactly and you know how um alicia's friend uh somebody was talking about the, the title 
I think I've been thinking a lot about the title Citizen Kane. It does mean something in and of itself. (laughs) And I just, that was enough to keep me thinking for a good, you know, hour this afternoon. So the original (laughs) title before they came up with Citizen Kane was The American. I did notice this in this viewing um, more than I remembered the last time or two that I'd seen it. The, that he constantly is like, I'm an American, and, and that it, I, and I thought about Citizen Kane, and he's mentioning, he mentions that he's an American a lot with a lot of emphasis. And to be honest, I didn't, I, I'm not sure why. <laughs> I didn't come to any conclusion on why that was. On the title? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think he's, he, he was, and he was a citizen who, who's idealistic. He had all these goals and ideas, but really he was just a citizen of himself. He was his universe, and how that bled into everything it ruined all of his relationships it's interesting what you're saying about the original title and i noticed too alicia and i think it's just like having gone through the last four years and so it was like hearing him yeah. over and over be like i'm american i'm american because i feel like at least from my perspective like you know the american story here would have been more of like a rags to riches kind of thing and like mm-hmm. okay so he was born not wealthy but he was like insanely wealthy by the time he was like six years old or however old he is in the opening scene yeah. and so i think for me just like it was from the beginning i i think it would have been a more interesting story if he had built his and i know he continued to build it but like if he had built his wealth himself more so than just like this kind of like lucky coincidence and I kind of thought that his whole thing of like, I care about the common people. I was just like, yeah, right. You've been rich your entire life. Like, I just don't (laughs) believe you. And maybe that's just me being jaded by our elected officials today. And, you know, I think that you're supposed to get that. I think that's what the film is trying to make. I think that he was idealistic and but it was also the idea that it was him giving these ideals. He was allowing the common man to have them. And to let him them know that he would give them his attention if they loved him back. So it's that same kind of thing. I think the film really meant that. Um, if we're not naming Voldemort, <laughs> yeah. but it's that narcissism that needs to feed off of. Yeah, and I think it's also that this is the actual American dream. People talk about the American dream as if it's like, I want to work hard and make a lot of money. That's not the fucking dream. The dream is that you want to just <laughs> fall ass backwards into a bunch of fucking money and not have to do anything. But I think that that's what, what this movie is really kind of like portraying. It's like, this is what everybody thinks a rich person is like. But then this movie is showing you like, no, this is actually what it's like to be that kind of a person or, or this particular one and the one it was based on mostly, William Randolph Hearst. But, um, and I think that that's probably why the guy that we're not naming yet, I, we might come out and say his name at some point, I don't know. Like, <laughs> it's his favorite fucking movie because he's an idiot and he doesn't understand. Is this underst- his favorite movie? Yes, it's yeah. his favorite movie. Oh my movie. God, not a surprise. Uh, and if you, if you go on YouTube and watch the clips that uh, Errol Morris shot for some documentary he did or was doing at some point about Citizen Kane or movies or something, I'm not sure what it's from or if it's, it's something that ever actually came out, but he doesn't understand what the movie is. He doesn't. Emotional not does not understand. Oh, I said the name. Sorry. I'll beep it out. I'll beep it out. Yeah, the, the unnamed person does not understand what this movie is if you listen to him talk about it. Like, he just doesn't get it. He doesn't get that it's 
is Citizen Kane isn't a cool guy. He sucks. <laughs> he dies alone. He died alone. <laughs> That's yeah. what he's but he, he just sees like rich person and he gravitates toward it towards it and he's probably like, look at his big house. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's like, yeah, he's like big house in Florida. That's my thing. And lots of yeah. animals. Yeah. I feel so. like that's probably I feel like it might not really be his favorite movie. No, I feel like sure, he might sure. just be He might also be full of shit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like what's the best like movie? it's the number one movie. It's my favorite movie. Just as a minor um, like Florida plot point too, the fact that this is supposed to be on the Gulf Coast of Florida. Yeah. It just uh, yeah, I was like as a Florida person as Alicia is too. I was just like, yeah, no. <laughs> what does he live in? Like the middle of nowhere? Like there's nothing on I mean, like well, I guess Tampa was, was there then. Like <laughs> what takes what when does this exactly take place? Where I I guess like in the nineteen twenties to forties is the bulk of it. I think there probably wasn't much out there at that time. No. They probably he probably could have built something out. There oh yeah, no, time. no, no. I think he totally could have, but I just was surprised out of like you know where rich people were going to Florida then to oh. have like like and then they have all their friends there. I don't know. It just felt yeah, like yeah, that's so true. They, he probably would have he probably would have built it in Palm Beach. Yeah, in that, it was like, in you know, that he'd, he'd be on the Atlantic side for sure. <laughs> Um, I was going to say, I, I did about uh, when you mentioning his idealistic streak when he was young. I feel like he was idealistic only in the most cynical way. Like, I didn't feel like it was um, genuine at all. He was like, yeah, we're going to be honest with the people and tell them the truth. But he wanted, at the same time, he wanted to just publish scandals stuff and sell papers. So we, what are you telling them the truth about, really? Mm-hmm. And And then everything, his whole life, everything that he did, was solely to benefit himself. He he never cared about. It doesn't seem that he ever really cared about anyone, any of the women, either of the women he was married to. Um, the first one was obviously a political thing. The second one was obviously like an ego thing. Um, and I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but did they not mention that his first wife and son died in a car? They did. Yeah, that was really interesting that they never like the son had no effect on his life at all. Yeah, like, even in the no- newsreel. But yeah, nothing. You never hear him mention this. The more things happen to him, the more closed off and the more, uh, I don't know what the word I want to say is, but the worse he became over right. time. And maybe that, maybe it was the effect of these things, you know, but, but he never mentions his son. That's how I took it. I assumed yeah. he was just broken from like a very young age from being like mm-hmm. taken away from his family and mm-hmm. raised by his, you know, investment advisor person in some boys school. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, obviously, like the thing that like breaks at the end in his brain when he sees this snow globe, I am assuming that that's supposed to be like reminding him of his childhood the last day he was with his mother, who was like his only family, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if they ever I know he says something about like the the stuff is in storage, but they make it seem like mm-hmm. after he left he never saw his mother again i don't remember if they mentioned her dying at a particular point though yeah well uh, when he meets his second wife he's on his way as he explains a little later to a warehouse where all the stuff from his childhood has been brought to because at when his mother died at some undetermined point in the a while ago yeah they don't really specify when um he had all the stuff put in storage out west where where she was and he had just brought it out to the East Coast um, so that he could look at it sometime. And he was finally getting around to yeah. doing that. So it's like if he had only done that and not 
got mud splashed on him and met a second wife, he'd be governor and then president and all that stuff. If you really <laughs> <laughs> well, also, I just don't understand if they have all this money, why is his mom like still out? Why didn't she just like come east with him or, you know, I think she was trying mom. to keep the father away from him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He but she could have better. gone, right? Because I, I thought that they were divorced mom and the dad or separated at least i don't think think there was divorce i thought that because it made it seem like i in my watching of it at least that i thought that uh he was like back around for kind of the first time in a while is what it seemed like to me like he's Mm -hmm. like yes it did seem violent like yeah so i just assumed that like she's running this boarding house because the dad is like a vagabond and yeah Mm -hmm. is gone so I assumed that she was like, oh, we have all this money. I'm going to send my son East to give him like educational opportunities that are not out here on like the frontier, obviously. Um, but I just don't know why she didn't go with him or at least visit yeah, occasionally. <laughs> if yeah, you have all that money. I just thought she didn't want him to end up like the dad. And, you know, that would give him the opportunity of not thinking that being raised by a banker was going to be like the worst thing, especially what you talk about with, you know, being wealthy and being powerful is the most important thing. He was not going to be, he might have been wealthy, but not powerful if he had stayed there. So she just knew I need to stay away from him. There was like a stoic quality to her, like this martyrdom that she was portraying. Um, Whether or not it was in the kid's best interest, it seemed that that was what she felt what it was so i don't think that um that character would have seen a place for her in her son's life so mia how much do you think your lack of enjoyment of the movie is due to a sort of familiarity from the movie just being so foundational for so much of what came after because i think sometimes when you watch the thing that so much stemmed from so far after you've watched all the things that stemmed from it, like it's hard to really appreciate the original thing. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that's part of it. Like I can't remember what movie, but I remember we watched something a while ago that I was also just like, meh, I don't know. It doesn't do it for me. And you were like, but it was the first time that this technique (laughs) happened or the first time this. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I guess for me, like I can appreciate that in movies, but that's not why I watch Mm -hmm. movies. And like, I fucking love Casablanca and as frequently cited as like also like the number one or number two best movie ever but to me like you know the heart of that story is like this emotional love triangle between these people and not that it has to be a love story per se but like movies where there's no strong emotional connection which in my opinion humble opinion this movie doesn't have just aren't the kind of movies that I enjoy and I again like I said I think technically amazing I think the half of that 1999 HBO movie that I watched and they had this like dramatic scene of him drilling into the floor and all that. I was like, okay, I think maybe if I'd watched something like more, here's a behind the scenes kind of thing. I haven't seen Mank, but like maybe if I watched that, I I would appreciate those things around the movie more. But I guess to me, it's like, okay, so is this movie the greatest movie ever because of all of this like stuff around it? Or is it because of like the movie itself I mean, or both, you know? Yeah. I think it's like the Ambersons. It's like, I think the sum of its parts makes it a good movie for some people um, because I felt like the ending of the Ambersons was terrible, but like it's still on all those lists as being really high. So I, I'm like you, I feel like it's just culminating in making it a great movie. 
even though by today's standards it might not be you know what mia said it's like not for everybody not yeah, everybody it's, no of course not so. well yeah i mean i think if you're if you want a movie that has emotion at its base like this movie is almost explicitly about a lack of emotion you know exactly. it's about a person who can't feel love in i disagree way. you oh Okay, I'm I'm curious what you what you think. I think it's is. more a desperation for being loved. Sure. Um, I I don't think that one of those negates the other, though. It seems to me that he's someone that didn't get the love he needed, doesn't know how to give love, and therefore also isn't isn't really capable of receiving love in a healthy way. Right, but I think and, he is still desperate for it, as Laura oh, is saying. Oh, of course. So I, I, agree I think with that. she's correct. But I, yeah, I, I, I think that both of those things is correct. Or, or, well, you know or that true. scene. He's like, it's not the Jedediah, I believe, is saying something. You just want love, but on your own terms. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. he toasts, and he said, "To what every man who's ever loved has always thought needed it on their own terms." Mm -hmm. You know, and I think there's something true there. Mm -hmm. We're well, all yeah. clouded by our own um, trauma and versions mm -hmm. of what love is. Yeah, the whole opera scenes were completely like that. It was like he was trying to force it. Devastating. Yeah, yeah, and it was on his own terms. He was just like trying everything to make her a success, even though that's not what she wanted. And that wouldn't make him, you know, wouldn't make her happy and it didn't make him happy, but he thought it would. But and that's where those comparisons to the Hearst relationship confused me. You know, I it seemed like Hearst really adored Marion Davies. He mm -hmm. pursued her for years. Um, he might have put her up in a palace, et cetera. But there was so much um, violence against this character, Susan Alexander. It, not literal violence, but just cold, unfeeling kind of emotional torture. I just don't know if that's how things were. And, you know, and when you talk about watching a film like Mank, where there's supposedly confidants, it doesn't add up. It almost doesn't ring true. And I don't know if I, I believe that they were even friends. Um, I just want to, in reading the Wikipedia entry again, <laughs> sorry to keep bringing it back to no, that. But, okay. um, totally. I, there, I mean, it is obviously mostly based on Hearst, but there's also some other stuff in there. And I do think that this particular relationship wasn't, although it does parallel the Marion Davis relationship, there was an, a mention of um, a different newspaper magnet that had a relationship with a woman. And it was supposedly a little bit more based on that relationship and not okay. necessarily the Marion Davis one. I can't remember either of those people's names right now, but it is in the way. One thing, the one scene that I did find like very compelling though, in like, I feel like it just encapsulated the movie is um, when she's leaving and before he like tears the room apart when he's like begging her not to go. And it's like, you know, at first he's like, no, please stay, please. And like, I thought he really did love her, you know, even before the scene, like thought he really did love her. He's just like such a broken person and such an asshole that like he can't, you know, like do, he can't love her how you are supposed to love someone. Mm -hmm. And, um, but he's like, you know, 
begging her to stay and it's like this really like moving scene there for a minute but then i forget what he says now but you know he just totally don't do this to me yeah he makes it all about right he makes it all about him and he's so like you know and she's just like because you can see her like wavering for a second and but then she's just like oh yeah wait never mind here (laughs) like um so yeah so um mia what did you think of the scenes when they met like when susan met um him for the first time because those seemed like they they got along pretty well and yeah. she did like and she didn't know who he was but there was some emotion there I thought I think that's the key it's like she didn't know who he was so he didn't have to be this person that was like this built up thing like he could just be and I, I think at that point too it's also like she is this escape from his like wife of 12 years kid like you know his marriage is falling apart so, you know, and she's like this like young, beautiful woman that he like has like literally stumbled across, you know, so I feel like it's almost like this portal opened. Um, but I did think that like it seemed like they genuinely fell in love with each other at the beginning. And but then, you know, I don't think it was love. I think she amused him. Hmm. But that means a lot, I think, in in the world of which he existed. So. I mean, I think he ended up having, when Geddes was blackmailing him and he had this choice, he could have chosen staying with his his wife and his kid and backing down. I think it was more about the idea that he couldn't back down. He had so much to prove versus the fact that he loved his mistress. Yeah, he's just a stubborn And so therefore he had to stick with it and prove to everyone that it meant something. Um, I was kind of thinking about like um, the midlife crisis (laughs) when I was watching this. It made me think about, watching this movie made me think about aging a lot and and dying. And I don't know if that's also just because of what we've been going through the last year or just because I'm also in my forties and like, I don't even think more about that as to get older, (laughs) sadly, but, yeah, it really, um, yeah, I just kind of wondered if that was like his midlife crisis thing, the relationship with her, where you kind of hit a, a point in your life where you're like, things are stale and you're kind of looking for something to like open up something new for you or or make you feel young again or whatever the case may be. Well, I, I do think that he's just a, a stubborn person who doesn't mm-hmm. like to be he doesn't like to feel like he's boxed into something by another person or even by himself. Mm-hmm. And I think at this point he feels like he's boxed himself into this life. And he's like, Oh, this random person that I just met who doesn't know who I am. This is something new that I can play with. And I, I think that there is, I think he's playing at love. I don't think he's capable of actual love. I'm not, I'm not sure if he's a sociopath or not, but I mean, mm-hmm. he, he seems like he could be, um, but Yeah. And that's what I think is interesting about his character, though, is that there's this ambivalence or ambiguity about the character that he's very compelling to not everybody, but to a lot of people, he's a very compelling character to watch. But it's hard to, like, be fully sympathetic for him. But there are times when you can be because you know where this all came from. You know that this came from him being a broken child who grew up into a broken man is and is going to die broken, you know, because from the very beginning, we know his fate, which I think is also 
plays into the whole Hearst thing. I think all of this does. I, I have something I actually want to read that that from the the uh, box set materials. They have like some stuff that are like recreations of like the promotional materials and also some like letters and things. So there, there was this draft of proposed statement to be issued by Mr. Orson Welles. Um, there have been recent statements in the press and on the radio to the effect that my picture Citizen Kane concerns Mr. William Randolph Hearst. I wish emphatically to deny that Citizen Kane was intended to have or has any reference whatsoever to Mr. Hearst or to any other living person. I have at no time made any statement to the contrary, nor has any such statement been authorized by me. In Citizen Kane, I have conceived of a wholly fictional character who acquires great wealth and becomes a powerful force in the country. I regret exceedingly that anyone should interpret Citizen Kane to have a bearing upon any living person. So I find this interesting because it's almost like daring William Randolph Hearst to be like, I'm that asshole in that movie. You know, like who would want to say that they're this person? It's almost like admitting that you're a shitty person to say that this movie is based on me. So it would be the easy. I mean, obviously it was partially, largely like the the structure of it, the 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 basic container of who this guy is, is William Randolph. The Hart. mansion, Sam Simeon yeah. versus Xanadu. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. just like, you know, newspaper magnate mm-hmm. and all that. But like, mm-hmm. but obviously they filled it in with other details. And the fact that it even just starts with this guy is dead. William Randolph first lived into the 50s, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he wasn't dead when this movie came out. And that's was the problem <laughs> with it coming out, you know? Um, <laughs> so it, it, it's just sort of funny to me that there's this movie about this guy who should not be sympathetic in so many ways, but it's easy to feel sorry for him. Um, and I, I, that's what I think is like sort of the engine that keeps the movie going is that you just feel so bad for this guy in certain scenes. Then in other scenes, you think he's a total asshole. It's just like, to me, it's, it goes back and forth. Mia does not agree with any of this. <laughs> Even <laughs> not necessarily the last, the Voldemort, but let's look at, for instance, Cuomo. Here is a socially, you know, liberal governor in New York who has clearly let power and um, all of it go to his head and behave very badly in a lot of instances as a bully um, and all these sexual harassment accusations. There's got to, there's a part of me that feels bad that it should, it's sad that it's, this it's coming to this, even though he orchestrated this, you know, like do other people feel that way? I think and to me, it's not to say that Kane, well, in a way, like during the the inquirer, those shots with the dancing and how he grabs that girl and kisses her, like that was those times. And mm-hmm. to me, it's our, it's it's exactly what probably happens, you know, not exactly, but crossing lines because you're in charge because you're the, you've got the power and it's you know it hurts a little for all of us to watch be a part of i think what i think i think that's what it is it's it's hard to watch because you're like you should know better man <laughs> that, that's what it is and i think yeah. that's also the same thing in a large way with, with kane is that it's not that hard to just not be an asshole if 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 you want to be sometimes you know like if he could afford to be nice to people if he wanted to be he just chooses to to go down these self-destructive paths and that's what 
is hard to watch and what I think generates sympathies. And I, I very clearly don't think it's empathy, at least on my part. Like, I'm not empathetic towards him, but I'm sympathetic. I'm like, man, it sucks to be you with all your money being a dick. That's something about the power of charisma as well. Orson Welles and so obviously um, Kane and then in real life, Trump and Cuomo are both people that maybe not for everybody, but for large portions of the population, these are people that have a char- have charisma and have like a sort of pulse of personality. And, mm-hmm. and you, yeah, he's likable in the film, so, you know, when he's a young man and he comes in and he sweeps into the newspaper and he just takes over and he's like making the old guy look old and ridiculous. You're like, yeah, like he's a young gun. He's, you know, he's going to come in and change things. And I, that's, there's something very likable about that. Even though underneath it, it's, it turns out to be sort of empty. Um, but but I think that, that that's why you you can feel for him is because there is this there is a quality to him that you like. And he also he seems like excited to be um, like doing everything that the banker doesn't want him to do. <laughs> and so you kind of feel like, yeah, I would kind of I might feel that way, too, if my mom had push me off on some banker when I was a kid, I might also want to just like ignore that guy's advice and like do, take over my own money and do my own thing with it from there. He reminded me actually a lot of John Edwards where you're just like, dude, mm. like just don't like you have, you could have this like incredibly promising career you, cause at that point he seemed like, okay, you aren't like, yeah, you are like on the same, on the right page with all of these, like, you know, oh yeah, it's for the people and all this kind of stuff. And then just like totally taken down. Um, <laughs> and I know we've kind of talked about like the story, but like, does anybody want to talk about the structure more specifically with the flashbacks and how that worked for you? And, and the differing points of view from the different characters and telling the stories that we see in flashback. I, I do kind of enjoy storytelling in that way. I think it gives you a little bit more perspective um, to see it, to see it for, on one, on the one hand coming from someone who is not the main character. And then on the other hand, coming after decades have gone by um, so that they have sort of the long view on the life story of the person mm-hmm. they're talking about. Um, yeah. I like, I like, that and then there's also like there's always the question of is this just this person is this just this character's opinion or is this like actually <laughs> what happened how much truth are we really getting at with with this does anybody have any thoughts on the authorship of the movie because i know that four out of five of us have watched mank which which <laughs> it really gets into that and then as i alluded to at the top of the show um pauline kale who is a very famous film critic uh, especially in the 70s, she was someone who revitalized the reputation of Mankiewicz uh, because she, she, I believe what it was, was that she wrote an introduction for a book that came out that was essentially the screenplay for Citizen Kane. And in her introduction, since it was about the, the screenplay, she wanted to do some research into how it was written and all that. And basically she came away from that process thinking that Mankiewicz was perhaps the sole author of it. And that's been something that had been disputed heavily uh, before that and since then. And especially Peter Bogdanovich, who was very much an acolyte of Orson Welles. Orson Welles lived in his house for several years and, um, you know, they, they were very close. But Bogdanovich interviewed him extensively 
And he wrote something in response to Kale saying that, no, that's not right. They worked on this together. There are, I think, pretty credible things on both sides of that argument, from what I can tell, of some people saying one thing and some saying the other. And it's just sort of like at some point you don't know where, where the truth lies in it. I've seen the films. I read some about it. I've watched some Bogdanovich videos about it. And I think that Mank did the first draft from start to finish. I think it was all him, which made him want the credit because it was done so well. And he might have then done some rewrites, but then I think it became Wells. And he took that first draft or second draft, and then he wrote the film that we saw today and added some scenes, created it, changed it. So I do not think Mank was the sole writer personally. Right. I don't know a ton about Orson Welles, but it seems to me that he was like such an auteur that I can't imagine that he wouldn't have made changes. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, I think that's the thing, the auteur thing, uh, because Pauline Kael was somebody who did not like the auteur theory from what I understand. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's a theory that she wanted to take Orson Welles down uh, as a stand-in for auteurism because Mm -hmm. she wanted to say like, films don't belong to directors. They belong to writers as well. They belong to cinematographers. They belong to the everybody. Because she was sort of like a reactionary to the French critics who had come up with the auteur theory a, a decade or so before mm-hmm. she really was a popular critic. Um, so I don't know. It, it, there is something about about it that does almost ring as like a a calculated hit on Pauline Kael's part. And she was sort of trollish, I think, in in some of her writing. Like, I like to read Pauline Kael, but there is shit that she writes sometimes. And I'm like, how the hell is that where you landed on this? And then you put that in this piece that you wrote. Like, I don't... I mean, there's so many times where it just seems like she's trying to say something because she's the only one saying it, Mm -hmm. uh, which is maybe not a fair interpretation, but it's just how I feel about her. But I I still like her writing. It's definitely fair if that's how you feel about it. Yeah, I think if it's his first movie that he's like, I he definitely had a hand in it. He definitely rewrote parts, and especially when he was out on the set, and you know, he he had a really firm grasp of all the characters, and I'm sure that he added a lot to it, like as he was going. Um, so that's all I wanted to say. I would think during the filming process, yeah, like that that you would see if something is or isn't working, and you would make changes as that's going on as well if you're the director. Yeah, but I, I think that starts to get into crediting and unions and guilds and stuff, though, because I, I think, yeah, directors often will, you know, redo something on set because it's not working. Or even a lot of times a director will take a script by a screenwriter or a team of screenwriters and they'll do a draft uh, of it that is going to be their shooting script, but they don't take a writing credit um, <laughs> because it just that's the point at which it's sort of becoming their film, so to speak. I think that that's part of the controversy over the years around this is there's this question too about whether Orson Welles may have asked Mankiewicz to keep his name off of it and let him just put his own name on it without Mankiewicz. I thought I read that it was in, it was in his contract. It was in Mankiewicz's contract that he signed with mm-hmm. Orson Welles' company was that his name would not go on 
but he fought to right. get yeah. it on. Get of course, right, right. Thing. Yeah. Um, was there anything about the movie before we go into the next question? I can just say that uh, I thought more about the house, <laughs> the big giant house, and how it like represented him, represented the character to me, and just got bigger and bigger and less and less useful and like and more the, exactly yeah the bigger yeah. the bigger it got and the more crap it got filled with the less uh the less beautiful and the less um people wanted to be there and um i liked uh, that was something that I, ha- I hadn't thought about in past viewings yeah and uh how yeah i guess that's I think that's the only other thing I really There's got to be something with all those statues, some like meaning there of like he was trying to fill the house with people secretly, but they're not secretly, but you know what I mean? But they're statues or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because it was just, I would be so freaked out being in that giant house in the middle of nowhere with like thousands of statues. Imagine like getting up to get a glass of water in the middle of the night. Like. <laughs> and the fact that she's doing jigsaw puzzles in there is just the most, it's just the craziest thing. Like it just seems like the kind of place where you don't do a jigsaw puzzle in the middle of this like a, pol- a palace really. Yeah. But what else are you going to do? What else are you going to do? It didn't seem very lived in. It just seemed like, you know, it was just the two of them, even though they said they had a lot of parties and it just kind of felt empty. I love that scene. I think it's like the last one that they're that they have together before they get in the big fight and she leaves and everything. And it's like they're like on opposite mm-hmm. sides of this mm-hmm. giant room. Just like and I think there's like she literally is like, what? And just like so reminded me of like, you know, being in a big house with someone else. We were constantly just like, what? What? What'd you say? Like, she's like doing this jigsaw puzzle on the floor in front of yeah. this like, you know, 10 foot tall, 30 foot wide fireplace. Like we were joking. We're like, I was like, what are they burning in there? Like whole trees? Like how is this a fireplace somewhere? Yeah, that, that fireplace I'd never had really consciously noticed before. It's it's the biggest fireplace that's ever existed. It must be hell to heat that house, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in the summer, well, it's in Florida, Florida. though. Oh, that's true. <laughs> um, you don't need well, a fire. It's cold at night, doesn't it? It's a castle. They're all drafty. What was your favorite scene or moment in the movie? I really liked the uh, the time lapse breakfast scene i thought that that was great when it's him and his first wife eating breakfast and it's like i guess in the wikipedia page i think it's supposed to represent 12 years and so it's like in two minutes they go through all of these outfits and makeup changes that are aging them and you clearly see their relationship you know the first one he's like you're so beautiful you're so beautiful you're so beautiful and then by the end they're just like on they also get further apart from each other on the table um the whole time and then by the last one they're like at opposite ends of this huge table like both just like reading newspapers i don't even think they necessarily speak to each other or if they do it's like very minimal so I just thought that was great. The best part of that is she's reading the Chronicle at the end. Yes. Oh, yeah. I love that. You're like, it's I over. didn't notice that. <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite. That's also my favorite scene that's in the movie. That's amazing. Yeah, and that's the part I love the most is like when she does this and you can just see I'm like, oh, it's over. So. Yeah, I like, this is going to be dark. Sorry, the being dark is like my theme of the day or something. <laughs> but um, the I like the the end when the camera kind of pulls out they're they're getting rid of all of his stuff he's died the reporter has given up finding out what rosebud is the story's pretty much over and the camera just kind of pulls out and you see just all his all the stuff he accumulated over the years and it's just going into the 
fire <laughs> and it's just like yeah this in the end like you can't take it with you you know like your life is gonna be just yours and maybe probably unknowable to a lot of people and they're not gonna care about the things you cared about and everything's going on the fire so you might as well try to have like relationships where people care about you as opposed to just stuff um it, the second favorite scene was the, of course the first one was what um me had mentioned but the second one was when um susan was performing and he got up to applaud and he like gave her a standing ovation and it was just like and he was gonna try by force to make her popular no matter what he could do and that was the way that he could do it in that moment so it just kind of told you like he was gonna pull out all the stops for her even though it's not what she wanted i kind of appreciated that but in a strange way and Laura, do you want to go or you want me to go? Oh, you go. Okay. I, I think on this set of rewatches, because as Mia mentioned, we watched half of it a few months ago and then uh, watched it again last night and today. Uh, <laughs> I, I think the thing that I noticed the most and, and gravitated towards uh, was the two opera scenes. Because I, I, I don't think I'd ever realized or at least I'd forgotten how close together they are in the movie. They happen, I want to say like five or 10 minutes apart. And at first it's sort of like, why are we seeing this again? But then the camera is behind her in the second one where it had been in front of her in the first one. And you're getting this totally different perspective. And for some reason that just really clicked with me this time. And then one thing that I've always loved about this movie, it's not really a scene, it's the transitions. They did this weird thing in this movie and this goes back to Orson Welles not knowing how movies worked, but coming from theater, where in theater, when you do scene transitions, you bring the lights down and you might bring this light down before that light and that sort of thing. And he thought that that's how you did it in movies. And really what people usually did was you just shoot the thing, let it roll out, and then you fade it out in post-production. Um, but he set up all these elaborate like lighting schemes to bring the lights down at the end of scenes. And it makes for these very uh, striking moments as we're going from one scene to the next where, you know, you have these weird superimpositions or the lights go down in one part of the frame that you don't see in other movies. And I've just always loved that about this movie. Laura? The scenes in The Inquirer were interesting because of all that was happening at once. But the part where um, Kane finally gets the, the staff of the Chronicle to join the Inquirer and they're celebrating um, and how Jedediah is talking about how the writers might change his ideals versus the other way around and how the, the perspective of how that's happening in the foreground and the dancing and the craziness is happening in the background. I really enjoyed that. And then at the closer to the end of the film, when Susan doesn't want to sing and he's just saying, you're singing, but how he stands up and literally walks into the frame and covers her in darkness. Mm. Just, just like, understand me, you will be singing. Mm. I thought that was a really incredible shot. As well as the globe scene, you know, those incredible, like the initial sequence is something of itself. Yeah, I was gonna mention that too, when he's like looming over her and you can only see her eyes like glinting. Mm. I was just like, whoa. <laughs> Like, um, I don't think I've ever actually seen that in a movie before, yeah. like a or after. cartoon. Yeah. I just remembered a moment that made me laugh. 
that I just wanted to quickly mention, but that I never noticed before when he's writing his, um, what is it? The declaration of principles. Or principles. Yeah. And he's like the, and the Joseph Cotton's character is like, make me a copy of that. I want to keep it. I want to keep that. And they're, they, he and uh, Kane start kind of talking and you're kind of focusing on the two of them talking. The guy that has to go make the copy of it stands there for a second and then he rolls his eyes. <laughs> and I never noticed thing. that. And I <laughs> never noticed it before. And it made me laugh so hard. I was like, okay, like that guy was like, Right. All doing his job he was, playing, <laughs> he was playing the newspaper man who did not care well that goes to the the whole deep focus photography that they did in this where you can look at what you want to in the frame which was like a, a, a kind of a new thing in this movie uh, that or at least it popularized it if it had happened before um but it was kind of considered a big deal so it, it obviously got plenty of good reviews at the time. It, it got some mixed ones, too. But uh, a lot of people appreciated it at the time, despite its uh, sort of controversial nature. It was nominated for nine Oscars, but it only won one Oscar for the screenplay. Um, it was also nominated for Best Picture, Director, Actor, Black and White Art Direction, Black and White Cinematography, Film Editing, Score, and Sound Recording. And the big winner of that year was How Green Was My Valley by John Ford. Um, and then it also won Best Film from the National Board of Review and New York Film Critics Circle when it came out. Going from there, it, it's a movie that really kind of took on a new life of its own later uh, because people started to recognize it for, for what it is and what they saw it as, I guess, um, more after the fact, even though there had been people who appreciated it at the time. Um, but I think that Hearst's campaign against it really kind of cratered the impact that it could have had otherwise. Uh, and the person that you might say is most responsible um, in some ways for the renewed success of the movie um, in the 50s was uh, French critic Andre Bazin. He's the one who got it like rolling on that train of it being called the greatest movie ever made. And he gave a speech praising it in 1947, then wrote an article that started to turn opinion on the movie, especially in Europe. And he wrote that the film's mise-en-scene forces the spectator to participate in the meaning of the film and creates a psychological realism, which brings the spectator back to the real conditions of perception. And then I think another thing that really helped push it was that RKO, the studio, uh, was one of the first Hollywood studios to sell their library uh, for play on television. And Kane um, got a, a whole new audience then when people could see it on TV in the 50s. Uh, and then at the same time, just about, uh, it was re-released in theaters because Wells was going back to the stage in New York and they wanted to kind of capitalize on that. And at that time, Bazan then wrote an article for film culture here in the United States um, where he said it was the great American film and the work that influenced the cinema more profoundly than any American film since Birth of a Nation. And Great company. Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> um, and then since then, uh, The Village Voice called it the best film of the century at the end of the 20th century, and AFI named it the best film the two times they did their big uh, poll in I think 98 and 2007. And then for our purposes of what the show is about, the sight and sound poll, it was on all of them. Um, it didn't make the top 10 in 1952. It was one of the runners up. That was in 1952. And then from 1962 
And then every 10 years through 2002, it ranked at number one. And in 2012, it dropped down to number two. And then on the director's list, they've done three of those so far. In 92 and 2002, is number one. And in 2012, it was number two. Um, and maybe it's worth mentioning that in on the critics poll in 2012, it was uh, overtaken by Vertigo, by Hitchcock. And on the director's poll in 2012, it was taken over by the movie we will be watching next week, Tokyo Story. So I don't know if this is a question we even need to ask at this point, but this movie stands the test of time, right? Does anyone not agree with that except for maybe Mia? Or I'm actually, maybe you should be the one to answer this. Like, like, do you, cause you've talked about how you can appreciate aspects of the movie, the filmmaking and all, it's just not for you. Just... I think it stands the test of time. I just don't think it should be like so widely considered the best movie of all time. I would like put it highly. Um, and I think especially looking at it from like the technical aspects, again, I think like the acting was really good. I think there's the whole like story around it. But I'm, I am surprised that it is so universally considered the best movie of all time. Well, I'll be curious to see if it stays at number two on Sight and Sound's poll next year. I'm curious what, if anything, everybody sees as its influence on craft and storytelling or anything. Like, are there movies or other pieces of culture that you see the imprint of this movie on? I'm sure there's a lot of things that have been influenced by this that I'm just not, that are just not coming to mind right now. There was a Tiny Toons episode that was like I mean, a I think that anything from The Godfather, any major film by any major director can't necessarily be brought back to comparing them to Citizen Kane. And right, right. Yeah. Made after it on some level. Because we've seen shots like, you know, the, the Kane when he's running for office and you see the, the big right. picture I of mean, him there's, Kane. I mean, everybody's seen that. Yeah. But I, I think just even in terms of the type of story it's telling, I, I think there are it, it kind of set a mold for what I, I would call and I'm putting this in air quotes because I don't think it's actually true, great man cinema. Uh I, I'm mm-hmm. thinking of movies like There Will Be Blood or The Social Network, where it's about this guy who just kind of sucks, but you wanna watch him be a shitty person in the world because it's compelling to watch and you're like, why is this guy like this? And they're just sort of interesting. Um, And I think especially the social network. To me, I think it made so much sense uh, that David Fincher wanted to make a movie about Citizen Kane because the social network to me is the closest thing we've had to that sort of phenomena that this movie was at the time because it's about someone who, who was alive and very powerful and probably didn't want the movie to come out, you know, like uh, Mark Zuckerberg, there's no way he wanted the social network to come out. It does not portray him well. Um, and they use his name on like Citizen Kane, um, mm-hmm. you know, but it, and it, it, it does sort of like a similar thing of, I don't think the social network rings 100% true. It rings out as a good movie story, you know, like I don't watch that movie and believe that every second of that happened and that's what Zuckerberg or this person or anybody did. I, I'm just more talking about like the fact that it's about a real person who's alive as the movie's coming out and being developed, I guess. But um, I, I think that there's been this strain of movie that's been chasing the sort of controversy of Kane since then. And people don't get the same blowback from it. You know, David Fincher's still making movies. Uh, his career didn't get tanked by Mark Zuckerberg. 
you know, because I think like the world has changed too. We don't have William Randolph Hearst in the same way, even if Zuckerberg is maybe even more powerful than he was, but he can't, I don't know. He, he doesn't have that in him to take someone down, I guess. I don't know. But we also have the thing now of like, there's no, all publicity is good publicity, mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you know, which I don't know if that was as much of a thing back then. I think they were a lot more concerned with scandal uh, in that era than they are mm-hmm. today. Yeah, well, image and perception is totally different now. Than mm-hmm. Yeah. So Alicia picked our bonus question this time around. I asked, what is your favorite ripped from the headlines movie? Uh, it doesn't have to be a straight up true story, but fine if it is. Um, just something that was inspired by true events and made for a movie that you really liked or that made you think or both. I can start if you guys want or go for it. Um, okay. My, I, I, on the Facebook group, I posted the big short. Um, but I think today I'm going to actually go with a place in the sun, uh, which is a, night, a movie from the 1950s with Elizabeth Taylor and Montgomery Clift and Shelley Winters. And it's about a guy that um, goes to, try to like make his fortune he has a rich uncle and he gets a job at his uncle's uh factory and he starts to sort of rise in the ranks and he starts dating a girl that works at the factory but he also falls in love with a rich girl who's sort of somehow tangentially related to the factory as well but she's like her father's like the manager or something like that and um he uh eventually has to decide what he wants to do here and he makes a really bad decision <laughs> um but i would i would just watching it it's great i don't want to spoil it though i answered uh all the president's men it's one of my favorite movies i've watched it so many times and it's amazing to me that it came out so quickly after that happened the the whole watergate thing mm-hmm. um so it it, it I just can't imagine what it must have been like to watch that movie then um, of, and just kind of see like, oh, this is how this thing played out that I've read about in the paper. Of, you know, I've read these guys' story and this is how they did it. It must have seemed so like of the moment. My pick was, I'll, I'll stick to the one that, I, there was several, but I'll stick to the one that I put on Facebook and it was To Die For. Um, that was the Gus Van Sant movie from 95. It's definitely a period. It, it's definitely a, a product of its time, but it's still a super enjoyable movie. Um, and that was based on a story that actually took place when I was in high school. This uh, this this uh, woman that was working for like a media department at a local TV station had her had these two students kill her husband. And um, it was in New Hampshire. So that's why it was definitely ripped from the headlines. And she was a younger woman. So there was actually like in the newspapers at the time, they had bikini shots of, of her that yeah. she had sent the kids, mm. you know, to kind of encourage her like, you know, to go along with this murder scheme. But as, as far as a movie goes, it's just, you know, Nicole Kidman's pretty excellent. I think that might've been the first movie I've seen her in like at that point. I don't think it's pretty seen underrated. Her. Yeah. It's, it's well-directed and it's just kind of well put together. It's well cast. It's just like, it's a, it's a good movie. I think it is a better movie than people think it is. That's my favorite role of hers. Honestly, uh, she's done so much, but that is really the one I enjoy her the most. And I really like that movie. I don't know if it's my favorite one, but a rip from the headlines movie that I enjoyed very much in my youth and rewatched a couple years ago and, you know, still solidly held up was uh, also about Watergate. It's this movie called Dick. Has anyone else seen it? Oh, yeah. Yes, oh, yes. yes. Oh, my it's great. God. It's such a good movie. 
Really me and my friend used charming. to watch it like all the time. It's hilarious. When I watched All the President's Men, like decades later, I was like, oh, like <laughs> so much of Dick was actually like really, really accurate. Um, <laughs> and it has such a great cast. Mm. You know, it's uh, Kirsten Dunst, Michelle Williams, Ryan Reynolds as like the hottie guy that one of them makes out with. Um, <laughs> the dad from Clueless is Nixon, who is just like so perfect for that role. I don't know his yes. real name, but he's always the dad from Clueless. Dan Hedaya. <laughs> yeah. Um, Will Ferrell's in it. it. Like, it's just, it's so funny. The soundtrack is so good. If anyone is listening and hasn't seen it, please, it's definitely available online. If you just want to watch like something super enjoyable and light, but also like learn about history while you're doing it. Um, how many of the <laughs> kids in the hall are in that movie? At least two, maybe more. It's very like SNL and kids from the hall as I was like yeah. quickly reading the Wikipedia. And it only has like a 60% or something like that on Rotten oh, Tomatoes. Uh-huh. But I was just like, no, no, this movie is so good. We should yeah. up that. Yeah. 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 We, we need all both. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> at least have a passing grade right <laughs> right exactly laura i chose river's edge i mean when i saw that you chose all the president's men i was like oh that was the one but i was thinking more about it and river's edge is a 1986 um dark film uh with keanu reeves one of his first films i think directed by tim hunter written by neil jimenez and it was based on a real life murder of a young girl named Marcy Renee Conrad, who was raped and murdered by, I think her boyfriend at the time and 13 kids saw the body over the course of two days before the film was, or before the the murder was um, uh, reported to the police. And this film is based on that. And it has Dennis Hopper. It was, it's really dark. One of probably the most disturbing films I've seen, but it, it's, it's really well done. Um, Ione Skye's in it, Crispin Glover, Bananas in the film, uh, the soundtrack Slayer. It's it's every disaffected youth kind of film that you'd want mm. to see. If you haven't seen it, you really need to see it. Right up my alley, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. It a it's really a dark teen. It's a teen film, but it's dark and funny at the same time it's it's just it really captured a time that early 80s metal period uh and then i'm gonna just quickly read off the answers we got from our facebook group um so jpk said dog day afternoon gavin said z and missing by costa gavras i haven't seen either of those um max suggested american animals uh, which I I had heard that was good, but I I have not seen it. Um, Charlie said Badlands and Quiz Show, and then mm-hmm. Beth uh, said the movie and the book Alive has always stood out for me. I guess because it seemed like such a far fetched scenario when I was younger, not so much anymore. So I don't know what that last part <laughs> means. But, um, Alive when they eat people. Yeah, yeah. When, when you get older, you have to eat people sometimes. <laughs> and but, it's now it's less far fetched. Yeah, 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 it's less far fetched. Yeah, um, but oh. I remember a conversation about Alive with two of the people <laughs> on this that that was very something, interesting. Very something. Interesting, emotional. <laughs> passionate yes it was very emotional there was crying i'm pretty sure but there were also 
day drinking margaritas. So yeah. that kind of <laughs> for the tears as much as anything. What that I was can't... me and Mia. Yeah. <laughs> Talking about plane crashes at brunch. Which if this mm. place isn't open still when I get back to New York, I just... <laughs> It's not even a brunch place. It's just like a good If this margarita place <laughs> isn't open. Yeah. Yeah. Place. We're going. If anyone in New York needs to get really really <laughs> shit faced. <laughs> we didn't intend to get wasted. Yeah. But we were just like happens. let's have we were like we need to eat. Let's it's we're it nearby. Happens. Like let's just go there and then it happens. Yeah. yeah. So what's our next week's question? I know we're re- we're watching Tokyo Story. Who's whose um uh, choice was that? Oh, that was my Alicia's. choice. That's your choice. You chose the first one on the list, right? Well, yeah, because my two picks that I had originally come up with were The Passion of Joan of Arc and The Magnificent Amberson. <laughs> <laughs> so in short order, those were taken off the table. Uh, so I just chose the the first movie that was on the list, which is Tokyo Story and um, I've been to Tokyo, so oh, maybe yeah. that'll help me uh, with give me some additional uh, insight into the, the movie. But I think it's about an elderly couple that goes to visit their adult children and how the different ways that the that the kids treat them. Interesting. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. Me yeah. too. And of course, Tokyo Story is directed by Yasujiro Ozu. is released in 1953, and it's available to watch. With an HBO Max or Criterion Channel subscription, if anybody wants to watch along with us, it's also rentable on all of the major platforms. So please do watch Tokyo Story and share your thoughts. You can do that by joining our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Stereoactive Movie Club, or you can email us at stereoactivemovieclub at gmail.com, or you can send us a voice message on our show page at anchor.fm slash Club. Can I just say real quick, too, it's called Mamacita's Bar and Grill. It appears to (laughs) still be open. Thank the Lord. It's on 10th Avenue. This podcast is produced by Stereoactive Media.